bits and pretzels inspire you. You will figure it out. This is clearly the place to be. Servus, everyone, and welcome to a very sci-fi episode of our podcast. I'm Britta Vedeling, Editor-in-Chief of Bits and Pretzels, and I welcome you to the show. Today, we are looking into the future. I'm talking to Amy Webb, a quantitative futurist and professor of strategic foresight at the NYU Stern School of Business and founder of the Future Today Institute, where she advises the world's leading Fortune 500 companies about what we should expect as we look toward a post-pandemic world. When Amy speaks, tech leaders are listening. Her annual tech trends report fills the halls of major tech events, such as South by Southwest in Austin, leaving no seat empty. I reached her in New York, where she collects data, trends, and new technologies that will shape the future. And we talked about what entrepreneurs need to do now to prepare for tomorrow. Amy said that during these uncertain times, founders should lean into the uncertainty instead of shying away from it. And she believes that the time for entrepreneurs and startups to shape a better future is right now. I am seeing sort of a grassroots innovation effort right now that I, I haven't seen before. And rather than people waiting for the big tech companies to build something cool and bestow it upon society or for the government to come up with some cool idea and make it work for everybody, I'm, I'm seeing people sort of taking it upon themselves to innovate, to socially innovate, to innovate in business, to innovate in their communities. And like always in this podcast, our guests shared some exclusive hands-on and immediately applicable advice for entrepreneurs to improve their performance, their companies, and their products. If you can't measure it, you can't improve it. Uh, and I think that that's very important. How are you measuring your success? How are you measuring what you're doing? Do those measurements actually make sense? Are they taking into account uncertainty and change? And then what are you doing to improve every single day? Thanks a lot, Amy, and welcome to the Bits and Francis podcast. Let me first start off by saying thank you for having me. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, if anyone wants to know about the future of their firm or the future of society, a wise choice of whom to ask would uh, probably be you because you analyze data and usually you provide people with a good and okay and a really bad scenario. So based on your current data, what's your forecast for the founder's in innovation ecosystem after Corona right now? Well, you know, at any given moment in time, there are lots of signals that will impact the future, which is my way of saying, even if we're in the middle of a catastrophic scenario, or if it looks like we are headed in a bad direction, there is usually some way to, to turn things around. Um, now, with that being said, you can expect to see a significant number of what I would call COVID aftershocks. So just like, you know, when there's a, a horrible earthquake and if it's a strong enough earthquake, you feel aftershocks. I think this is a similar situation um, that will continue to produce aftershocks for, for quite mm -hmm. a, a long time. Mm -hmm. And what I'm really talking about are shocks sort of to the fundamental operating system of our modern economy. Um, the weakest startups and businesses will probably fail. Um, and that's because if, if they are already vulnerable, 
and are having issues with cash flow uh, or, you know, building a new portfolio, building a new business, Mm -hmm. that's a time when you're already having to take risk. And this, this is, you know, obviously making things a lot worse. Um, We're probably also going to see a, a, like a big consolidation wave coming Mm -hmm. um, where we see, you know, companies that startups with really interesting technologies or businesses that are failing might be acquired by larger organizations or as they go out of business, those larger companies may pick up on the idea or the product or the service um, and then continue to to build on it. Um, And so I think we're going to see significantly more consolidation going forward. And this pandemic, I think, is playing to the strengths of the world's largest technology companies. Um, Amazon, yeah, so Amazon has just been on a hiring spree. Uh, They had record Q1 sales in the United States. Apple was supposed to have its first decline in in its corporate history, but instead wound up um, with a 1% revenue uh, increase. So you know, I, I when we're talking about data collection and predictive analytics and entertaining us while we're all quarantining and accessing the cloud and digital transformation, you know, these are these are all the strengths of these large tech companies. And as the economy starts to reopen, I think a lot of the antitrust um, and anti-consolidation movements that were present in the in the EU um, and in the United States are probably going to subside um, because any politicians trying to enforce those regulations are going to find themselves under pressure not to undertake any actions that could lead to additional job loss. Right. So, and yeah. And and I, I think, you know, that there, there was a lot in your answer and I wanted to just like try to, to break it down um, a little bit and go like, you know, do, do like a kind of a deep dive into the different topic that you touched on from entrepreneurs consolidation and obviously also a topic that you wrote a lot about that you talk a lot about which is like the power of the big tech companies the big nine as you call them in mm-hmm. in in one of your recent books right so if i'm an entrepreneur if i'm having like an early stage startup what should i do now what kind of data do you think are valuable for me? How should I navigate this uncertain future? You know, an entrepreneur who probably doesn't have this deep pockets of a later stage startup or um, one of the big tech companies. How should I think about this situation? So the answer to that question is a little complicated. Um, (laughs) I, I know that if you're a startup, like the, the number one thing that I, I think I hear from new companies, from startups is we're just trying to focus on the product. Let's just focus on the product and we'll worry about the money or our customers or everything else afterwards. And that's kind of an excuse to put on blinders and Mm -hmm. to avoid. and, And that's so dangerous because if you lock yourself in a room and just focus on your product or your research you're you're making an assumption that the world outside has is not changing at all. Um, many years ago, I was a fellow at the MIT Media Lab, and I met with a lot of the graduate students. These are like the best and the brightest, right? These are people mm-hmm. who are working on really complicated projects and research and ideas. Um, and sometimes they're doing this with some of the world's largest companies. 
So I just remember being there um, and on more than one occasion reviewing somebody's research and talking to them about their strategy and what they were working on. And it was clear to me that like they had just sort of been in a bubble for a year or more right. and had and didn't realize that somebody else on the outside world had already invented what they were working on mm-hmm. or that they had improved upon you know, what they were trying to do or the problem that they were trying to solve had already been solved. And the reason for that is because they were just focused on their product. Now, focus is really important. Um, However, you have to be willing to continually monitor signals from the outside world. I would say that right, right now it's harvest season for new signals about the future. So if you want to not just survive what's happening... But if you want to grow um, and thrive, then you have to focus on your work, but you also have to really carefully look outside of your industry and your field at all of the different things that are happening. And that doesn't mean you should pivot every five minutes or something like that. But you know, it does mean that you have to just be more sensitive about next order implications. So mm-hmm. if these three things happen, even if they're tiny... What could right. be the next order impact? And then how does that affect your startup? And, and most importantly, what are your escalation triggers? So how are you going to know when you have to make a change or when you have to make a decision or when the strategy that you have doesn't work anymore? Right. And this is like exactly like harvesting the signals, looking at the signals and creating advice and predictions and strategies. That's basically kind of your job as a quantitative futurist. Mm. Uh, so, so describe what you do and how would you describe your work to, let's say, a 10 years old kid? <laughs> um, actually, my work is pretty similar to what a 10-year-old kid would do. I've, I've got one. Uh, my daughter is 10 <laughs> and she and I kind of operate in a similar way. Um, you know, she gets out her toys or she starts working. She's really interested in um, engineering, but also art. So she starts working on a project. Um, There's a lot of, she doesn't have a lot of cherished beliefs, right? And so Mm -hmm. that means that that the entire world is open and possible to her. Um, So a quantitative futurist is somebody who models next order outcomes, using a very broad spectrum of data. So this might be weak signals, strong signals, trends, other factors. Um, And the purpose of this work is to understand, you know, if this thing happens, then what could be the the next things that result? Um, Mm -hmm. we, We tend to work in an interdisciplinary field that combines the hard sciences, so mathematics or tech or engineering social sciences like economics and game theory and other fields. And while a lot of people like to talk about predictions, futurists do not make predictions. That's not what we do. Um, our mm-hmm. job is is to make projections in order to create a state of readiness um, so that we can make better decisions, build long-range plans, and imagine alternate future states. Right. So, so talk about this signals that you see right now, or maybe mm-hmm. the five developments entrepreneurs should keep an eagle eye on right now based based on your data. Uh, what kind of strong or 
like weaker signals are you getting and where do you get it from? Yeah. So um, the short answer is we have this futures wheel um, that we call the 11 macro sources of disruption. So anytime we are thinking about the future of anything, these are the like 11 constants that we're always looking at to see what's changing. And some of them are pretty obvious, like, you know, demographics and the economy. But we also look at geopolitics and infrastructure uh, and public health and media and telecommunications. Um, and, and so that means if we're looking at the future of artificial intelligence, we sort of force ourselves to think about, okay, well, given what we're seeing in AI, um, now what are we seeing in one of these other areas like public health mm -hmm. um, or infrastructure and where can we make connections? So that's the sort of baseline easiest way to do this. And I, I guess I should also mention that all of our research and our frameworks um, are all freely available and they're open source. So if you go to our website, you can download any of these things and use them yourself. Mm -hmm. um, so, so, so start there. And I think a lot of startups make the mistake that, you know, if they're, whatever field they're in, they're just focusing on their near competitors in that field and forgetting about everything else. Um, you know, we're in a situation where the world in 2020 is quite different than this time a year ago. So, right. um, you know, entrepreneurs should be really paying attention to two sets of, I guess, signals. One is what's fast moving and going to have a high impact. And then what's slower moving, but also has the possibility of having a higher impact. So I'll start with the fast moving, high impact trends. Um, so that would be anything at all that has to do with automation, which, you know, probably you were thinking about before, but given where we are with the global pandemic mm. and, um, you know, the, we're not going to have a global vaccine or inoculation for a while, right. which means that robotic process automation, collaborative robotics, um, cloud-based robotics, basically machines that do things that otherwise people would have to do in close contact, we're, we're seeing a lot of acceleration there. Um, we're also seeing a shift uh, in cybersecurity. So again, you've got all of these people suddenly working from home that weren't working from home before. And, you know, hackers know that the average person's house isn't a super secure place to do computing. So mm -hmm. we've started to see much more sophisticated attacks emerging from Iran um, and, you know, China, uh, not just Russia, you know, where, where right. we tend to see those types of attacks. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Uh, what we've seen here in Europe was like a strong decline in revenue expectations, for example, in the mobility space, right? Which makes totally sense because people stay home and work remotely. On the other hand, we saw like a huge upraise and, and rise in um, revenue expectations for fintech startups and obviously mm -hmm. healthcare and education. You talked about collaborative co tools that are now vulnerable to to hackers. But what 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 do you think about the different innovation verticals of the innovation industry and, you know, what kind right. of signals are you getting for these specific verticals? Right. So that those are the verticals. So the, what you mentioned um, is what I would put into the slightly slower moving, but high impact category, right? So mm -hmm. anything having to do with home-based diagnostics. So, you know, 
uh, imagine a, a toilet that is outfitted with lots of different sensors. And every time you use the toilet, um, your biometric data, like a, a, what's called a urinalysis, is taken. And you will know whether or not relative to your baseline, there's more sugar in your urine or more protein or whatever, which basically means every single time you go to the bathroom, you've got a diagnostic test. Um, that is a little slower moving. It's certainly faster moving now because of the pandemic. Um, and it's going to have a huge impact. There, there will be an enormous ecosystem that arises as a result. Um, you know, yes, we're all staying home, but that doesn't mean that mobility goes away. Um, you know, a lot of the research is still underway and mobility isn't its own thing. It intersects with AI. Computer vision and spatial computing are huge, huge components of mobility. Um, and if anything, we're seeing, you know, revenue in some spaces may be down. However, um, because people have to have had to stay home in the United States, we're seeing, um, uh, regulatory clearances so that land-based drones and air-based drones can start making deliveries. Mm -hmm. So, and in the fintech space, um, you know, there's always a lot of excitement around fintech um, and also a lot of disappointment. Yeah. I would say that not just the global pandemic, but also the racial injustice protests that are happening, you know, and we have yeah. elections happening around the world I think we're going to see faster adoption of something called self-sovereign identity, um, which allows us to basically control and present identity data while a third party validates um, that, that identity uh, mathematically uh, using uh, public and private keys. There wasn't really a use case for that before, but given where we are right now, um, that's something that people are pretty excited about. But again, a slower moving trend. Mm -hmm. What we see in the political spectrum, not only in the US, by the way, but also here uh, in Munich, we had like protests here um, in the Black Lives Matter movement. What do you think are like the long-term effects of this movement now spreading around the globe? Mm. So again, this is one of those difficult social movements to monitor um, because what, so as a futurist, you know, I'm, my job is modeling, right? So the end of the model is never a fixed answer because again, things are always changing. So instead, I'm looking for guides to help me make sense of things. Mm -hmm. um, this is a hotly contested uh, political year in a lot of different countries. In the United States, we're in a situation where people's political beliefs are very strong, but our political parties are actually really weak. They're the weakest that they've been in a long time. Um, and that's allowed uh, the extreme factions of both parties to have a clearer voice. Um, one would hope that the result of the protests is change and that, um, you know, we, we have significant and serious um, changes to how we do business, where we make our investments and the like. That being said, um, I was just looking at some Uh, diversity and inclusion data from Google mm -hmm. and Apple and Facebook. And the, the numbers are, 
are not good. You know, they've, mm-hmm. they, uh, all of the, the tech companies promised, um, right. to, to make a much bigger effort to diversify its, uh, employees. And it's been you like know, that for a long time. I remember yeah. I did the first stories around diversity in tech, like four years ago. And it was already, yeah, already right. like, Oh, we have to do more. It's not good enough. Like from all these companies. Right. Right. And it's still like a disaster. I mean, it's a disaster. It's a disaster. It's actually worse. I think Google, right. I'm going to, I think I remember that they hired something like 20,000 people over the past couple of years, but you know, less than some ridiculous number, like less than 3% or something were people of color or something like that. I've, I think I've got the numbers off, but you know, the point is, um, <laughs> that I can't name a lot of fortune 500 companies where you have women in the C-suite, who, women who are not the chief marketing officer or chief human resources officer. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I don't see a lot of chief executive officers, chief strategy officers, chief financial officers who are women um, or who are people of color. Um, I don't see a lot of the upper echelons of our governments, um, you know, with the exception mm-hmm. of maybe Germany and New Zealand, where women are are in charge of things or you have people of color in charge of things. So again, I think I think the protests are going to continue Um until something causes them to stop. And that thing can be uh, extreme weather events or, um, you know, an uptick in the spread of the virus or some type of commitment to change. And, And not just like a CEO writing a letter, but actually proving out to people that they are making changes. It's a lot of lip service that we see. Uh, and, you know, like following this for a long time, it's like lip service for years. But I wanted to come back to to COVID and the entrepreneurial uh, community. You, you've called this pandemic a catalyst for fundamental immediate change. Um, how mm-hmm. is this pandemic making things possible that seemed impossible beforehand? Primarily, my team and I advise just huge um, global companies and also, you know, government agencies. And in, in a mature organization, um, you know, one of the, the biggest, uh, challenges is success. Because if you are a successful organization, then there is very little impetus to change. And so, um, the cherished beliefs tend to get solidified whether or not they continue to be true. Mm -hmm. And that prevents all kinds of positive change from happening. It means that rather than, let's say you're a company that makes um, food, like a huge, you know, food producer. Um, It means that you've got your global processes set up so that, you know, your key ingredient only comes from this farm and it cannot possibly come from any other farm anywhere in the world. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that is a huge, huge risk because what happens if on that farm, let's say, you know, in Alsace or something, um, all of a sudden there's there's a flood that year or there's a drought or there's some other kind of crazy weather change what happens to your supply chain your your right. supply no, chain is sick, right or people are sick right that can or anything right right so here's what the virus has shown us um the the virus has shown us that a lot of our big systems are actually pretty brittle 
Um, and that the reason that they are brittle is because nobody has been forced to confront their Jewish beliefs about alternate ways of doing things. So I actually think that as much heartache and pain um, that, that this virus has caused, another way to look at it is that it's a catalyst for positive change. And I think if, um, if we're willing to look at it that way, then the next question should be not how do we go back to the way things were, but rather how do we rebuild and create stronger ecosystems, stronger economies, stronger companies, stronger cultures than we had before. How can companies adapt and rebuild the internal culture uh, to yeah. be prepared for the ne next black swan or something? Oh, well, there's two questions in there. I, I think the one, the first question is what do you how do you make the best use of this situation that we're all in? Um, companies that were waiting to go through a digital transformation, uh, you know, this should be your biggest indication that, that you have to modernize. A lot of utility companies, the, the utilities, so like power generation and distribution, um, they are some of the slowest to adopt more modern technologies that would do things like distribute power, you know, in a more efficient way, um, or measure and monitor power. I mean, this seems kind of like not that interesting, but it's a fundamental, um, part of our infrastructure. Right. Uh, and also how those companies interact with their customers, like on the ground, you know, in the United States, everything is done face to face. I mean, that's, that's crazy if you stop and think mm -hmm. about it. But but um, that is the way that they've always done it, uh, the power companies. And uh, there's no database system that you can access. There, there's no digital transformation that's happened. Um, so this is, a, this is a good opportunity because there's so many benefits on the other side of it to go through that digital transformation. Because the other thing you want to do is create um, a value network, right? So the, the more... Um, in this case, the more data that you produce that, that you can glean insights from across different areas, the better off your organization is. So, you know, that's one thing. Um, mm -hmm. The other thing is with all these companies working remotely, we've spent, a, I've spent a lot of time inside of enormous New York City office buildings where a company might be spread out over several different floors. And, you know, the problem is if you've got three, four floors separating different departments, you've created a physical barrier. I mean, unless you come up with some very clever way to get those people to interact with each other, they're not going to. Mm. And the companies that I see that do the best at um, watching signals and making incremental decisions for the future are companies that invest in cross-functional teams. So not silos, right? The mm. opposite of a silo, having cross-functional teams um, and facilitate tons of knowledge sharing. So now that everybody's working remotely, a lot of companies are using Slack and they haven't before, you know, where they're having different types of communications channels, which has given them an opportunity to, to mix and match people a little differently. So that's another, you know, like it would be such a shame for everybody to go back to work someday in their offices and lose that. 
you know? Right. Any, I think that's the question, right? I mean, do things stay the way they are moving forward? Do we all work from home more often? Do we connect more? Do we use more, I don't know, Zoom calls, more Zencaster mm -hmm. or any other platforms? Or will it be like kind of a step backwards uh, after mm -hmm. COVID-19 is over? Well, again, I think it depends. Um, I strongly encourage companies to take stock of what they are learning right now. I think so many companies, because they are under duress, big companies, startup companies, you know, everybody, they're just trying to get through the day. And what they're failing to do is to observe, you know, what has changed um, from our previous version of ourselves to our current version of, of ourselves and what makes sense going forward. Because humans, you know, we, we, we love patterns and we develop habits very quickly, good habits and bad habits. Um, and companies do the same thing because just like people, companies have limbic systems and companies also sort of develop organizational habits pretty quickly. So everybody right now should be really thinking about what works and how do we carry forward, you know, and, and not just like, oh, Slack works really well, but what exactly about Slack? And what exactly, like, can you, can you get down to the nugget of the specific thing that is working well? And then once you do go back to your office buildings, can you figure out a way to make whatever that thing was, um, can you continue it? Because what I'm hearing is, I'm hearing companies saying, oh, we'll just like Twitter and um, Facebook are talking about permanent uh, working from mm -hmm. home for employees who want to. Mm -hmm. You know, again, we're looking at this, I think, in a pretty... Um, we're thinking about this like in a brute force way rather than in a sophisticated way, right? So it shouldn't be we either all work from home or we all go to an office. It should be, hey, what about working from home makes sense? What specific things? And how do yeah. we, you know what I mean? How do we translate that in the future when we're all back together at work? And absolutely. what did not work? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I would also say, you know, that there are things that I don't don't like about Slack. For example, that, you know, mm. that, that you, if you really want to do deep work for a couple of hours, you will never get to it <laughs> because mm. you will always have another message. But that's a different story. And I think there are like advantages and disadvantages uh, at, at, the t uh, at the same time. I wanted to come to something that you often uh, quote, which is like Nintendo as a perfect example of a company that knows uh, how to adapt or adapt it pretty well. Um, they've been around for 130 years. They started with card games, have survived world wars, broadcast media and the internet, and just have had a break, record-breaking uh, Q1 uh, quarter. What mm -hmm. makes them so successful and what can other younger companies learn from them? Right. So, you know, I'm always, uh, I'm always asked about the companies that I think that do the best job thinking about the future. And Nintendo is always at the top of my list and people are kind of like, really? Um, Nintendo is, you know, started out as a, as a company that made a very particular type of playing card that required artisans that knew how to make paper and knew how to make gold leaf that they could paint. And it required this entire ecosystem. And, you know, I think what Nintendo has always done so well is they've always, always thought about next order outcomes. So when the television set emerged and it was looking like, you know, at some point this big clunky 
piece of furniture that has a moving picture on it is going to be more affordable for the average family. And once you ha- once you've got kids who can sit in front of a you know a television set, why on earth would they want to play a card game, right? Mm. So rather than digging their heels in and just preserving the status quo, they instead confronted their cherished beliefs. So right now people like to play cards. In the future, in a world in which televisions are everywhere, how will people want to be entertained? And it was because of that question that Nintendo built a console that you could plug into your television set Mm. and play a game, right? Um, And they just kept asking that question over and over and over again. And rather than looking at signals only from within their industry, they are continuously looking for signals outside of their industry. And if you're you know, if you're like a hardcore gamer or if you're building, you know, games, Nintendo is not exactly like the number one coolest gaming company in the world, right? Um, mm-hmm. And they are not part of esports. And it, But that's kind of besides the point. Um, they are the healthiest of all the gaming companies, possibly mm-hmm. outside of Tencent. Uh, they are continuing to grow. And this company is like 140 years old. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So, yeah, absolutely. Coming to the second part of our podcast, which is since we are a Bavarian brand, a Bavarian uh, conference, it's our beer garden break. Um, And this is how it works. We are moving over to our beer garden bench, which in these days is obviously a virtual beer garden bench, uh, grabbing a virtual beer uh, to come to a more personal part of this podcast. Um, What are we drinking to? (laughs) Um... I wish I was drinking a Hefeweizen right now. It's a little early in the morning for me. Uh, what am I drinking to? I'm drinking to, um, I don't know, it's it's beautiful outside and we still have agency. I'm, I guess I'm drinking to, the, to free will. Great. Cheers to that. Cheers. Your background is very diverse, to say the least. You started your career as a journalist. You speak five languages, including Japanese. You write. You've got a bachelor in political science. You play the clarinet. Uh, you got a bachelor in game theory and economics, which is hugely impressive. Uh, how does all of that influence how you do your predictions or your forecasts um, right now? Um, that's a good question. I think... You know, I started music when I was very young. I was four. Um, And my parents uh, were very insistent that I become proficient. So I learned to play uh, different instruments. You know, and I would say that I'm technically proficient, but I'm not a good musician. Um, And I think that that's true of everybody, right? You You can sort of like work really hard and study and learn and at some point you're going to be proficient, but there's a, then there's the element of natural talent. Um, I think when it comes to foresight, um, you know, I've been trained to recognize patterns since I was very little. And I think developing the aptitude for pattern recognition and just being a very naturally curious person um, me, meant that once I developed the aptitude the technical proficiency in foresight, then some of that natural talent 
um, that I happen to have for this, but I don't have for music, you know, Mm -hmm. um, sort of took over. And you also met your husband based on a data analysis. Yeah. Tell us about that one time. Um, (laughs) so I, uh, the short, the very short version of the story is that I was doing online dating like everybody else. And it became fairly clear to me early on that these dating sites were not that promised to match you with somebody. They, they weren't matching you at all. Um, if anything, they were only matching you by geography. And that meant I kept going on these awful, awful dates, like one after the other. Uh, and finally, I decided this is really dumb. Um, I should use the dating website as a database, which is what it is, and then build my own algorithm and uh, go in and make it so that um, I, I can get matched with somebody. And it turns out that um, in manipulating the algorithms on a dating website, I met the person who later became my, my husband. Cool. That That's a good story. And you're still together, I guess, then. We are. In fact, we just a few weeks ago celebrated our 12th anniversary. Congratulations to congratulations to that. Absolutely. Um, So so coming back to um, this situation we are in right now, as somebody who is a futurist, can you give us any advice on when all of this will be over and when how this new normal is going to look like? Which I mean, everybody's expecting will be different, but nobody knows how differently it will be. Right. So I'm more curious about why people are asking that question than the answer to that question. And the reason is because I think what people are asking is, when will the world stop changing so much? I mean, we, we as humans have been through a lot over the past 12 months. Um, and I think our tolerance for continual change is wearing thin. So when people Mm -hmm. talk about what's the new normal, you know, what they're really saying is, please, when when will we have a day when, when I don't wake up and something brand new is happening that I now have to deal with? Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the answer to, so if you think about it that way, um, because if you ask the question, what's the new normal, I, I don't know, you know, there's like a thousand different variables that are all in the process of being formed right now. And if you think of the future as a sort of calculating an enormous sort of gnarly, wicked, multivariate equation, you know, get, you mm-hmm. get a headache. Um, mm-hmm. So instead, I th- you know, the question is maybe not what does all of this look like in the future, but when do we start seeing less change? And I think the answer to that question is not for a while because tomorrow could look actually quite different. I mean, the, the geopolitical world order could be different. Uh, we could have a mutation of the virus, yeah. which could uh, cause even more destruction. Or we could have a mutation of the virus because a virus is just code, really. Um, or it's a it's a container for code. You know, we could have a mutation for the virus that actually kills the current virus. I mean, there's like a thousand different possibilities. Yeah, maybe we even have somebody else in, in, in the White House uh, in, in the U.S. moving forward, which would be my one of my wishes certainly um here from from my side um so you know since since we talk about the future um and you know our community is always interested in you know the new innovations new disruptions what's making you optimistic about the future and the future of the innovation ecosystem i i am seeing sort of a grassroots 
innovation effort right now that I, I haven't seen before. Um, and rather than people waiting for the big tech companies to build something cool and bestow it upon society or for the government to come up with some cool idea and make it work for everybody, I'm, I'm seeing people um, sort of taking it upon themselves to innovate, to socially innovate, to innovate in business, to innovate in their communities. You know, and I, I to me, that that gives me a true sense of hope because it means that people haven't given up. And, um, and that, you know, sometimes we forget that the thing that separates humans from machines is our creativity and our ingenuity, uh, and our heart. And so seeing communities all around the world come together to solve problems for each other in this extraordinarily difficult time gives me an immense amount of hope for the future. We have another uh, chapter in our, in our podcast, which is our toolbox. Um, and the toolbox is um, a, a box to inspire young founders with a glimpse at the tools um, that, you know, people in the innovation industry like yourself have always kept in their belt to ensure their lasting success. So what would be like the three tools every entrepreneur in the innovation industry should look at right now. Number one. The first, the first tool is to focus on preparing for the future rather than predicting the future. And I know that doesn't sound all that much like a tool, but if you're not actively doing it, then it's, then it's not happening. So the first thing that I would say is for an entrepreneur, what are you doing every day to actively prepare for the future? Um, and if the answer to that, if you can't answer that question, then you're not doing it. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the first thing. Number two. Number two. The second thing is to think about your end consumer. It doesn't matter what business you're in um, or what your startup is. Who is the customer? What, who are you doing this for? And with every single decision that you make, you have to ask yourself, are we creating a future opportunity for ourselves and for our customers? Or are we, whatever we're doing right now, this decision that we're making, is it going to right now or in the future create a barrier? This is another question that never gets asked. And I think it's a really important one because right. especially in tech, as we see people adding on features or adding on components or whatever, they're not asking that question. And that's mm -hmm. how you wind up with systems that just don't get used. And, and that today look pretty good, but in the future have problems. Number three. The third tool is not mine. It's Peter Drucker's. Um, mm -hmm. And he sort of, his mantra was, if you can't measure it, you can't improve it. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that that's very important. So how are you measuring your success? How are you measuring what you're doing? Um, do those measurements actually make sense? Are they taking into account uncertainty and change? And then what are you doing to improve every single day? Coming to the very last part of our podcast, which is our either or game. Uh, and this is how it works. I give you two words uh, and you have to make a choice and describe real quick why you made this choice. Here we go. Bits or pretzels? Pretzels, because come on, pretzels. I've been to Germany several times. I would rather just sit and eat pretzels there than do anything else. <laughs> Data or intuition? 
Oh, data. Uh, because you can't trust your gut. Black Mirror or Star Trek? Star Trek, uh, because Star Trek is the greatest show of all time. <laughs> I, I would definitely totally agree on that. Uh, stronger after the crisis, the US or China? China. You want me to explain? We don't have enough time. Uh, <laughs> the, United is doing, the United States is doing a lot wrong. Uh, we are making horrifically bad short-term decisions at a federal level. And China, under uh, the leadership of Xi Jinping, uh, is organized and moving in a different direction. Their economy may have a temporary temporary problem, um, but but they are in the process of building out emerging economies. And uh, I think we ought to recognize China for what it is, and that is an innovation, diplomatic, economic, and militaristic pacing threat. Reality or fiction? They're kind of the same right now, aren't they? Hmm. <laughs> Future or past? Uh, well, you can't have one without the other. I, I hate to keep hedging. Um, if, it, if, if the question is about a time machine and would I rather go into the future or into the past, I would choose to go into the future. Conquer or compromise? Compromise. Because, again, unless you are the architect of the game that you're playing or the system or whatever it is, um, you, there is no circumstance under which you have total control over every variable. Therefore, uh, game theory or hopefully just common sense would tell us that, that you have to compromise. Follow or lead? Lead. Lead most of the time. Sometimes it's okay to fast follow, especially if you're an entrepreneur, but um, lead, with, uh, lead with good intentions. Amy Webb, thank you so much for coming on the Bits and Presses podcast today. Thank you so much. All right, that was it for today. Thank you so much for listening. Please let us know how we do and write to us at podcast at bitsandpretzels.com. Don't miss the next episode of this podcast and subscribe to our media newsletter at bitsandpretzels.com slash media sign up. Again, that's bitsandpretzels.com slash media sign up. Stay safe and see you next Wednesday.